beginning of verse 24 and going to the end of the chapter, verse 37. Let us hear the gospel. Glory to thee, O Lord. Jesus speaking here. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then he will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Praise Christ for his glory and gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Jesus says to stay awake. I'm going to challenge you with that here as we read through Nehemiah chapter 3. In all its glory here. That's page, if you're using your pew Bibles, I think it's page 399 or something, roughly. 398, 398. I'm actually going to start with the last verse of chapter 2 and then we'll carry on. Nehemiah 2, verse 20, carrying through all of chapter 3. Then I replied to them, Nehemiah speaking, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you, the enemies, have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakboz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Merakiah, the son of Shezadah, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles did not stoop to serve their Lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Pesodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshama. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jabin, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. 
Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruled of half, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haromath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rehab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kel Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzor, repaired to appoint copies of the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehoboam, the son of Phani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keba, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Babai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Keba. Next to him, Azar, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashim, the high priest. After him, Merimah, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashim to the end of the house of Eliashim. And after him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashem repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress under the corner. Halal, the son of Uzzah, repaired opposite the buttress in the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Benaiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living in Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section, opposite the great projecting tower, as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalom, the son of Barakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the mustard gate, to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Stay away. <laughs> Let's pray that prayer. We pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Mm -hmm. All right, question for you all. Trivia. What is the worst part of any movie? The credits. You guys are quick on the call. That's very good. Nobody likes to watch the credits. In fact, almost nobody does. That's the part where everybody gets up and leaves the theater, right? 
Uh, for a while, in the 90s, the kids are amused by this because we have enough like old VHSs, you know, they tried spicing up the credits in the movies by taking the scene, theme song from the beginning and then doing it in a bad early 90s rap version, you know, or R&B, sometimes they still do that thing. Sometimes Pixar likes to animate the credits or include some cool music to make it a little bit better. Uh, other film franchises have come up with a diabolical scheme to force you to watch to the end of the credits by including an Easter egg at the end. And you'll suffer through ten minutes of scrolling names just to see if Nick Fury is going to show up and twist the main character's arm and join in the cause, right? So many Marvel movies were out. I started looking for Nick Fury at the end of every movie, like, maybe you'll invite Moana to come on next, but it didn't happen. And maybe you've seen this on TV, uh, sometimes they get clever, they'll show the movie, uh, and then when the credits start, they speed up the credits to like five times the speed, and they squeeze it onto the side of the screen, uh, while they tell you that the next movie is going to be this, right? Uh, but they always show the credits. They have to, I think, by law. Hence the silliness of the whole thing. And, you know, this had been on my mind earlier in the week, but it was driven home on Wednesday night. Because uh, me and Georgia and the four of our kids rewatched the, the Lord of the Rings. We finally finished rewatching the Lord of the Rings. It took us some, some time, a couple months, to get this done. And like all movie credits, it's incredibly exhausting, right? Uh, one of the weirdest things about movie credits is some of the actual jobs that you see listed there. And you're like, I can't believe that this is even listed. You know, it's not just the actors and directors and the producers and the associate producers and the camera crew, stuntmen, best boy, key grip. Dolly grip, wardrobe managers, choreographers, animal handlers, personal assistants, chefs, carpenters, costumers, different crew for each country where we were filming, animators, conceptual artists, you name it. And we were watching the extended versions of The War of the Rings, as God intended. <laughs> Those are already quite long, not to mention the exhaustive bonus material where you can see all of these faceless peons in action, right? And I admit, we did not watch all the credits at the end of the movie. But I looked it up later and discovered that The Return of the King holds the all-time record for credit length at 9 minutes, 33 seconds, in the theatrical version. On the extended versions, the credits last a full 20 minutes. There's some trivia to impress your friends. This includes, part of the problem is, it includes every name of the Lord of the Rings fan club, which helped finance the project. Apparently you could join this thing for like 40 bucks back in the day, and there are like 9,000 names on this list. I was not one of them. I kind of wish I was in retrospect. <clears throat> Why are the credits so ridiculously long? Because it takes a lot of people to make Middle Earth, in this case, a reality. This doesn't just happen without all hands on deck. Real people have to do a lot of real work to make the thing happen. It takes thousands of workers, and a full year in this case, to bring these films to the screen. And that makes for a lot of credits, even with the shout without the shout-outs to all of the fanboy nerds, right? And Chapter 3 of Nehemiah is kind of like the credits at the end of the movie. Not as long as that. And it, it's not at the end of the story, but you know what I mean. And I read it all because I think these names are worthy of remembrance, otherwise God wouldn't have it in there. It wasn't legally required, but I thought it was appropriate. Now, we saw in Ezra 10 
that some lists of names are in the record because of their screw-ups. You can think of Ezra 10 as the credits at the end of a really bad movie, right? Like, these are the people responsible for this mess. Like, uh, Bob was the director, I'm sorry, that's all we could afford. Uh, costumes, that was Kathy, I know, that was in bad taste, we already talked to her about it, you know, like that kind of thing. That's not the kind of credit you're looking for, but in, in a successful project, people deserve positive credit. And this project, this rebuilding of the Wall of Jerusalem, is destined for success. As Nehemiah said, God is going to make them prosper. And so the builders are properly recorded and credited here in chapter 3. Now, what do you have to do to get on that list? What is credit worthy in Nehemiah's eyes? Well, you'll be glad to know, I'm not going to be rereading the whole thing, but I wanted to trace some details and themes that sort of jumped out from the text. Uh, and we learn a lot here about who was doing the work, what they were doing, and how they went about it. And, and it's fascinating and frankly surprising to see it all coming together, as, as it does, because building a wall is complicated. Setting doors is also complicated. Ask me how I know. Thanks for asking, Phil. I, I built, for those of you who've been to that house, I have built three small retaining walls in my yard over the last couple of years. I like to think they look okay, uh, but they took me many months, actually over a year. Uh, some of you saw the pallets of bricks out back and thought that they were maybe part of the permanent decor. <laughs> now, I finished all three of these small walls, but none of them are perfectly level. None of them are perfectly square. Uh, one of them is already being pushed up by a tree root because I was afraid to cut the whole root out because I didn't want to kill it. And all of them required a ton more time than they should have. Why? Because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a wall builder by trade. All I have is a quick tutorial from the guy at the landscape supply and YouTube. That's what I have. And yet I would sooner build three more walls like that than hang a single door. Uh, in my first house, my notorious Belfont house, I did a door. I, I bought a replacement door for our bedroom. I would have had to do one for the other bedroom, but it was easier to just tear a wall out and not have a door at all. Uh, we bought a replacement door, and I decided to splurge and make it easy on myself, and I bought a pre-hung door, right? And once a pre-hung door, it already has the frame around it and everything else. So, you know, it's an impossible to screw this thing up. And guess what? I screwed this thing up. I, it didn't swing like it should. It didn't close like it should. It was hitting the ceiling in the bedroom. Uh, and I managed to work the whole frame in the process. And so I vowed never to mess with doors again. And I have mostly kept that vow, which is why my current house doors are all messed up. Um, and I won't fix them because they don't make it worse. I, I did mess briefly with the back door and I, I still regret that. Uh, and, and this is why, when you read a chapter like this, what immediately impresses me, I know from experience that stone walls and solid wood doors are heavy and more complicated than they look, which means that mistakes are easy to make and exhausting to undo. And they didn't have modern equipment or YouTube, and yet this, this ragtag group jumps eagerly into this work. And 
make no mistake, this is kingdom work. I, I wish that kingdom work was always this clear and tangible. Uh, so much of what I do as a pastor, I, I, you know, I, I wonder how Jesus is making any difference at all. And that's not unique to ministry. Uh, how many of you can attest that the work that you do, you know, someone has a visible sense of accomplishment and you wonder, right? That doing a good day's work is not always visible. And we're visual people. We tend to think in terms of what we can see, what we can show at the end of the day. And if we're not building, we wonder what we got done. You know, like spiritual labor is typically invisible. Uh, and for the same reason, you know, raising your kids in the fear of the Lord, that's not a visible day-to-day -day thing that you can see, you necessarily. The teaching doesn't have visible effects. And I feel like spiritual work is often like that, hidden from the naked eye. But this Jerusalem wall project was different. It was very tangible, physical work. But just because it's a brick and mortar operation doesn't mean it's not also spiritual work. These people are doing kingdom work by laying bricks and stones and hanging doors. They're doing the Lord's work and participating in this revival we've been talking about in a very tangible way. They're, they're making Nehemiah's vision a reality. Now, we saw last week about this, this vision of Nehemiah's, uh, this vision that God had given him that he had laid on his heart, and, and he had kept this vision under wraps, he kept it secret, buried in his own thoughts, and it was only after he inspected the walls that he revealed this vision to the people. Uh, but the vision is meaningless, if it isn't put into action. If, if a vision is limited to words on a page, or words spoken in a pulpit for that matter, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change anything, and it won't bring revival. If a vision is not implemented, it's only a dream, a fantasy. Vision becomes reality only by taking actual, tangible steps. Mission is vision put into action, and that's what we're seeing here. God gave Nehemiah a vision, Nehemiah shared it with the people, and the people respond by getting to work. Now, who are these people? Who's actually doing the work? And the short answer in this passage is just about everybody. What jumps out in the chapter is the sheer diversity of the workforce. It's clearly all hands on deck. And I'm willing to tell you that you know, this is not an exhaustive list. Somewhere there are uncredited people, that, you know, the wives that were cooking massive meals to feed this, this hungry crowd, people hauling materials and tending the work animals. Somebody had to provide housing for the out-of-towners that were in here working. And there would be children carrying water and tools and holding torches for dad if they're working late, probably getting yelled at for their efforts because something's never changed. <laughs> But I, I, I see here some general principles of revival on display, things that are credit-worthy, that get a place in Nehemiah's credits in chapter 3. The first thing that jumps out to me, this sort of primary and obvious, is that the people are obviously sold on the vision. Because you don't drop everything else you're doing and shut down your business and leave your fields unattended and your personal projects on the side, right, all to focus on this one project unless you are sold on vision. Revival requires work to make the vision happen, and that requires buy-in. And me and I got that buy-in, they're completely invested. And it's amazing, because it happens so quickly. Me and I shows up, and three days later, comes this night ride inspection, right? And, and the next morning, he announces the vision and they jump on board immediately, which is good, because if they hadn't, the vision would be dead in the water. And Nehemiah can't make this happen alone. But the people 
people are sold on vision, and they believe that this is a divine work, and only the Holy Spirit can convince this many people to listen to this out-of-towner in Nehemiah. But I also want to see in this passage that revival, this revival work, is for everybody. There's room for everybody. When revival happens, the Holy Spirit is no stone unturned. It affects everybody. And the Holy Spirit is not limited by the people it's working with. Now, I want you to consider that when it comes to revival, the Holy Spirit is not limited by your profession, personally. Revival work is not restricted to experts. We talked about that already. We talked about how Nehemiah is primarily a bartender, right? Uh, but revival not only doesn't need experts, it seems to require almost anything but. You'll notice what we just read through here in chapter 3. There's not one mason in the list. That's what's missing. And in fact, most of the people mentioned are not physical laborers at all. A complete list of the occupations that are represented here. Priests, goldsmiths, perfumers, <laughs> rulers, some sort of district managers, bureaucrats, Levites, temple servants, gatekeepers, and merchants. That's just the ones that get mentioned. So basically a bunch of like pastors and like church employees, deacons, Tinkerers, salesmen, bureaucrats, not exactly a dream team for this kind of project, you would think. But kingdom work is not limited by your occupation. Again, the Holy Spirit loves to use such people. I think that's why it's mentioned. Nehemiah could have just given them a list of names and been done with it. There's no reason that we have to know that there were perfume makers involved. It's not critical in a sense. But he makes a point of letting us know so that we realize this was an amateur crew. And again, it makes me think of the people that Jesus liked to hang out with and the kind of people Paul worked with, right? Silversmiths and tent makers, fishermen, tax collectors, soldiers. God loves to start revivals among a diverse group who have little in common and also no expertise at all. And he does this so that only he will get the glory. He stacks the deck so that only an act of God can make it work. No one will be able to see this wall and not recognize a miracle happened. I also noticed that when it comes to revival, the Holy Spirit is not limited by sex. It is not purely a man's business to see to it that the kingdom work gets done. Now this week, I've been trying to pick up some illustrations by experience, and, and so, you know, Phil had me paint walls on Tuesday, and we had some women in that crew, including Georgia, for a little while, and, and yesterday I was stacking firewood with the younger kids, and Evie observed that, hey, we're basically building a wall, Dad, which was true. Um, painting walls and stacking wood, they make good co-ed projects, but building a stone city wall all the way around Jerusalem on a hillside here. <laughs> that sounds like men's work. It probably will offend some people, but oh well. I'm no feminist. You may have picked up on that times. I believe in chivalry. And I believe in traditional gender roles and all that stuff. I think it's biblical. And, and moreover, this, this work is hard and dirty and dangerous. And like Ocean would have a field day with bringing in all these amateurs to touch this thing. And yet verse 12 tells us 
that wanted Shalom, who was the ruler and administrator of half the city, was out there hoisting stones with his daughters. That's remarkable. And I love that because I don't think it proves some sort of political feminist argument. I love it because it shows a sense of urgency and commitment and I think excitement. I think it's the same reason why Jenny, I mean, when we're out there moving wood with me and Jacob yesterday, because they were eager to do it. Now, this is very different work. This is far more demanding, really, and the stakes were certainly much higher. And we don't know their ages, but I'm assuming that they were young because they're living with dad. They're unmarried. And, and girls married younger in those days, so they're probably kids, teens. Young girls would only volunteer for such a project, either because necessity demanded it or because they were eager or both. And I think what it shows is that they believed in Nehemiah's vision, so they had this sense of urgency. Like, we can't stand idly by while Dad does this by himself. We need to help him. And God doesn't despise their help. He gives them a shout-out here in the credits. I think that's so cool. They wanted a piece of the action, maybe even a piece of the fun, and I think they're caught up in this general excitement of God's people. So revival is not limited to leaders and heads of household or men in general. The, high school, the, the Holy Spirit is not limited by sex or age. Everyone has a role in this revival. And I, I want you to also notice the geographic diversity that's represented as well, because not everybody building the wall lives in Jerusalem. There's nine or ten different cities represented here. Jericho, Tekoa, Gideon, Mizpah, Zenoa, some others I'm not going to bother saying. And what this says to me is that this project is not merely a matter of civic pride. And this is not just Jerusalemites building a wall to make Jerusalem great again. Many of the workers have no direct skin in the game. They come from the suburbs. And yet here they are, building, pouring themselves into this project. It's the closest thing to an urban missions trip you're going to find. And they're not building purely out of self-interest, but because of the vision. So what this tells us is that when the Holy Spirit stirs up a revival, it doesn't stay local, it spreads, the enthusiasm spills over, it becomes regional. It's not just about Jerusalem. The vision spreads to God's people, whether they live in the city itself or not. Their hearts are now burdened, just like Nehemiah's was. So the revival touches nearly everyone. With one notable exception. Did you notice the only ones who were not working? They were in verse 5. Techolites prepared, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The nobility of Tekoa don't answer the call. The Hebrew literally says it this way that their honorable ones have not brought in their neck to the service of their Lord. Now, Tekoa is a village about 12 or 15 miles south of Jerusalem. Nehemiah doesn't dwell too long on this thing, but he wants you to know that these guys stayed home. The honorable people would be bending their next to the work. The proud want nothing to do with revival. 
the work is hard. It is demeaning. It is clumsy. It is undignified. And it does not look impressive. Revival is good for almost everybody, but revival is not for the proud. Because it does not stroke your ego. You will look like a fool, and you will be ridiculed, and you will wonder at times if it is worth it. Your Bible requires you to lay aside your pride and all earthly honors. Pride and revival don't mix. And it's not that the Holy Spirit is too weak somehow or impotent to get through to these nobles. I think he's just not interested. Not for nothing, we read elsewhere in Scripture that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what's credit for you Not what you bring to the table, but the God-given commitment to the vision. Revival is for everybody, as in all kinds of people, except not the crowd. And because of that, it doesn't matter who you are, what your profession is, male, female, old, young, where you're from, what your skill set is. And I think that's encouraging. But I want us to see something else by way of application, and something about the way that they worked. One thing I noticed just now, I'm rereading it here, that, that there's a humility that comes with the work. Somebody had to have credit for building the dumb game. You know, like, shout out to that guy, that's great. But Nehemiah says, again and again, that they're working side by side, hand to hand, shoulder to shoulder. And the picture you get is that they're ultimately working in a complete circle like this, with their backs to everybody else. They only see the work in front of them. And so in a sense, they're working together, but they all have their own section. And one phrase that keeps getting repeated is that many of them were working on the wall right outside their own house. And of course, in a sense, that's pretty practical and obvious. Like everybody likes working from home, right? COVID caused that. <laughs> And it's natural to be concerned with your own neighborhood. But the fact is, the value of your work in that sense would depend on everything else going on. Because if one section of wall somewhere else is unfinished, then your work becomes worthless. It's like the city's already breached. Your section of wall beside your house won't keep the invaders out if they can just go around to the other neighborhood where there's still a gaping hole and just walk in. The city will fall. And that means that the success of this mission doesn't depend on any one individual, right? Something can easily go wrong while you're working on your section. And it occurred to me that what these people are simply doing, they're simply doing what's in front And the Bible looks like that sometimes. They are literally focused on what God has put in front of their face, and they are trusting God with the rest. It's simple obedience. But simple obedience takes faith. And I want to keep harping on Lord of the Rings, but George and I were talking about it, and she was observing this week, you know, that every character in that movie, in the story, is going to do a difficult to impossible job, and the success of their mission always depends on someone else doing something else somewhere far away. And, and there's a scene in the final movie where Frodo and Sam are on a hill and they can see several thousand dorks in a valley. And they need to get through, but it's impossible. And they don't realize it, but they're actually depending on their friends to create that diversion many miles away. 
But what's striking is that not knowing that, not knowing how this is going to get solved, Sam says to Frodo, he says, well, Mr. Frodo, let's just start digging down this hill. It's a simple act of obedience. It's an act of faith. It's a small thing. And you don't know how it's going to work out. But it takes faith to do what's in front of you, what God has given you to do in the moment. And, and maybe even especially because it's in the little things, because a little job doesn't seem like it's going to change anything. And we can't see how it can possibly make a difference. It requires faith that God will bring all those things together. Revival is not glamorous, and it's not necessarily even exotic. It might be right at home. It might be right in front of your face. But God honors small obedience. That's creditworthy. You can't make revival happen on your own, because you're not that big of a deal. You can't do it alone. And only one person can make the Lord of the Rings films. It's not a solo act, but you have a role. And revival looks like simple obedience, faithfully doing what God has put in front of you. And what's driving and motivating this simple obedience that we've been seeing here throughout the MI3 is that they believe that God is going to bring it together for good, because that's the vision that was placed on Nehemiah's part to seek good for God's people. And isn't that the promise that Nehemiah proclaimed back in chapter 2, verse 20? That's why I read it again earlier. That's the precondition to everything that's happening in this chapter. They believed Nehemiah when he said that God would make them prosper. And they wanted a portion and a right and a claim in Jerusalem. They wanted the promises. And so they became masons overnight. And they were willing to look like fools to lay hold of those promises. This whole group of builders is a reflection of the absurdity of the kingdom of God. God's not looking for experts, but for people who want the promises and who believe him when he promises good. People who hear Nehemiah's bold words and say, all right, no guts, no glory, no pain, no gain, and they get to work doing what God's put in front of them to do today. And God will look at a clumsy bowl made by perfume makers and shopkeepers and old men and little girls and he'll smile with deepest pleasure. Because they are building by faith and for the promises. That is credit worthy to him. That's why these people are in the MI3. And you may ask, who does this all have to do with Jesus in the gospel? But if you ask that, uh, I was racking my brain last night with how I put this poetically, and I was kind of failing to come up with words, George, that remind me of the entire point of the passage is that you don't have to be an expert in that, just say it. But today is the first week of Advent. Um, this is the season of the anticipation. We are all looking forward to Christmas and also Christ's second coming, right? But we, we talk a lot about the incarnation. And when God became a man and dwelt among us. And, you know, when God became a man, he came as a carpenter. Which means he came as a builder, someone who knew how to build walls. Not just because he was God, but because that was how he was trained as a boy in his humanity. Which means that 
Unlike everybody listed in Nehemiah 3, he was an expert. And yet he came to earth, and he walked many times into Jerusalem, probably at least once a year, even from a child, right? He would come there for festivals and things like that. And every time, he would see the old foundation of Nehemiah's wall, and he would enter gates built by amateurs, and he would do miracles and heal people and proclaim the kingdom in those very gates. He loved that city. He loved that city enough to leave over that city. And when his time had come, he went there only to die for us, and ultimately he was put to death just outside those very walls, probably facing them. His mission was to save his people and to make them prosper and to give them a portion and a right and a claim in Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't come here to save the experts and the best and the brightest and the nobility. And he didn't come only to save the people of Jerusalem or the people from this or that town. And he didn't come to save just men or women or the young or the old or particular professions. He came to make a people for himself out of every tribe every tongue, and every nation, men, women, children, the elderly, perfumers, merchants, goldsmiths, plumbers, deli men, teachers, nurses, housewives, misfits, who have no business serving so great a God, but we nevertheless trust him and claim his promises out there. That's the gospel. It's not about you and what you bring to the table. What will land you in the credits in the last day is that you are a Jesus fanboy. And it doesn't even cost you $40. <clears throat> you get there by trusting him because he's the one who will build him ultimately. He is the source of revival and he is building his church. He just likes using us in the process for some reason. What a privilege to do it. So trust Jesus. Work hard, work on what's in front of you, and trust in the results. Amen. That's okay. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And these long chapters that it's so easy for us to just breeze right by and walk through this list of names. But Lord, these are real people. Having been living here, we knew these people would be exciting to read such a chapter. And one day we will know. Not just in the credits here of me and my three, or the living credits in the last day. What a joy to get to know them more. What a joy it is to participate in the work that you are doing in the kingdom. Well, we are not worthy. We bring nothing to the table. There is no merit in us. Thank you for making us useful. We pray that you do so. For the sake of your son, for the sake of your husband. Use us. Grants rivers the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise God from whom.